Well, good morning, church. You're going to take your Bibles out with me and turn to the book of Genesis. Uh, we're going to pick it up where we left off last week in Genesis 39. And if you're looking in those black Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the chair underneath where you're sitting. Grab that Bible, and Genesis 39 should be found on page 33 of that Bible. And it's our encouragement to you that you keep your Bible open and follow along as we read God's word and consider what God is saying to us. God speaks to us through his word, and so we want to listen carefully and consider what he's saying to us this morning. Everyone there? A few of you? You can say amen if you're there. Are you there? All right. All right. We can talk back to each other. It's okay. This past week, my family and I were driving down 301, and we saw uh, an Amazon truck that had an advertisement on it that said, Warning, contents may cause happiness. Now, that's a clever, it's a clever ad, and it's suggesting to those who are sad or who are losing hope that if they just go to Amazon.com and click add to the cart, it'll make you feel better, make you feel happy. Now, true confession, um, we get our share of Amazon boxes delivered to our house Um, It's convenient, I'll admit that. And opening a long-awaited box that's at your doorstep, it it does feel good. But does it bring us the happiness that our souls long for? Let's say that you got a full ride scholarship to the university of your choice. You got the the long-awaited promotion at work Your business becomes a booming success. You fall in love. You find the spouse of your dreams and have a happy marriage with somebody who loves you back. You have children who become successful and well-adjusted citizens. You get the house of your dreams. If these things happen, if life goes according to your plan, you might say that you are What? Blessed, right? But when plans fail and relationships fall apart, when dreams are shattered or illness lingers, you may not feel so blessed on those days. On dark days like that, we may feel like, I need another package from Amazon so that I feel happy again. But will it help? Perhaps for a moment, but soon the happiness will wear off and hopelessness will again be knocking at your front door. Genesis 39 is going to challenge the world's shallow idea of contentment. And Genesis 39 is going to turn around after challenging that shallow view of contentment and offer us something far better. A contentment that is beyond the reach of changing circumstances. Instead of offering us something to cling on to for hope and happiness, the Bible presents someone to fasten our hope onto. That's what we're going to see in Genesis 39. So let's look at God's word together. This is the best part of the sermon. 
So let's look at God's word together in Genesis 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, Because of me, my master has no concern but anything in his house, about anything in his house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, He would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called the men of her household and said to them, see, He has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But... The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. God's word. Friends, when we read Genesis 39, at first glance, it may assume that this chapter is about avoiding sexual temptation 
And the moral would be, well, be like Joseph. And that lesson is there in the text, and we'll come to that soon enough. But I think that the main point of the text is not resisting temptation. The main point of this text actually has to do with God's presence. I want us to notice, kind of step back and look at the bigger picture of the text because I want us to notice how the text begins and ends. Notice in verse 2, the text begins saying, the Lord was with Joseph. And then if we, if we skip to the very end of the text, in verse 23, we're told, the Lord was with him. So in a Hebrew narrative such as Genesis 39, when you see bookends like this, verse 2 and verse 23, what's known as in Hebrew narrative as an inclusio, the point that that bookend points to the big idea of the text. So we can summarize the big idea of chapter 39 this way. Whether up or down, God's people have hope because God is with them. That's the main idea of Genesis 39. Whether up or down, God's people have hope because God is with them. So with that big idea in mind, what I want us to do is go back and walk through the text scene by scene and put this text together. So we'll look at the the first scene. Scene number one is this, a light in a dark place. If you're taking notes, scene number one, a light in a dark place. We're going to see this scene in verses one through six, the first part of verse six. So verse one of our text really sets the scene for this chapter. And it reminds us in verse 1, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. You'll remember last week, um, several weeks ago, Genesis 37 introduces us to Joseph. And then 38 is kind of almost feels like a rude interruption when we look at Judah and Tamar. But then 39 picks it right back up with Joseph where we left off the last, last verse of 37. So this verse, verse 1, is meant to draw our attention back to where we left off in chapter 37. Joseph would have been well acquainted with God's promise to his great-grandfather Abraham that God was going to make Abraham's family into a great nation in order that through this family of Abraham, he would be a blessing to every nation on earth. That was his promise in Genesis 12, verse 3. So, Joseph would have been well acquainted with that promise to his great-grandfather. That promise then passes on from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And for years, Joseph would have enjoyed the status of being Jacob's favorite child. Jacob was foolish to, to have done that, but it's very clear in the text that Jacob favored Joseph and his mom, Rachel. Joseph was the younger of his brothers, But in chapter 37, Jacob had promoted his younger son, Joseph, to be over, kind of the overseer, the supervisor of his older brothers as they watched the sheep out in the field. And and it was his job to report back to dad how his brothers were working out in the field. And you can imagine how annoying that would have been to the older brothers, In addition to that, after being promoted by his dad, God actually confirms this by giving two dreams to Joseph that kind of was telling him about, was foreshadowing his future. These two dreams 
were, were reminding Joseph that one day um, his family would bow down to him. He would be the ruler of his family and, and, the na- and the surrounding nations. He couldn't put all those things together, but that dream was foreshadowing. It was God's word about what was going to happen to Joseph and through Joseph. And so as Joseph walked around town, being dad's favorite, having these dreams about him being kind of the center of Egypt, walking around town, mind you, with a coat of many colors that symbolized the favoritism that he enjoyed, it wouldn't be hard to imagine Joseph, if he had a cell phone, taking a selfie and then posting on social media, hashtag blessed. Things were going well. But irritated by their younger brother, jealous of their younger brother, his older brothers in chapter 37 grab him by the scruff, rip off his coat of many colors, which they hated, and threw him into a deep pit that he could not get out of and left him there to die. And we're told that while his older brothers are enjoying dinner that evening, and he's crying out for mercy from this pit, and they're ignoring those cries, they change their mind. Why not make a little profit off of this? And with Judah's suggestion, they decide to sell their brother, younger brother Joseph, into slavery. They sell him to human traffickers that happen to be passing by, and they make 20 shekels of silver off of it. These Ishmaelite traders then drag Joseph to Egypt, where he would be sold as a slave. Betrayed by his brothers, now far from his homeland, far from his loved ones, now alone, a slave in a foreign land. When we pause and look at Joseph's life there at the end of 37, we might assume that God was perhaps angry with Joseph about something. We might assume that God had perhaps abandoned Joseph. But look at verse 2 again of our text. We may assume that, but the text says, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And when you read the text, these first five verses, it's interesting that Moses repeats Egypt, Egypt, Egyptian, Egyptian master. We got it, Moses, but he keeps repeating it. Four times in verses one through five, we're told that Joseph is in Egypt and his master was an Egyptian master. It seems like Moses is saying to his Israelite first readers of Genesis, hey, you remember when you were slaves in Egypt? Remember when you felt like God had forgotten you and God had abandoned you? when you were slaves in Egypt? Well, then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses then addresses the reader five times to drive home the point that God had not abandoned Joseph. Verse two, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse three, the Lord was with him. Verse three, The Lord caused all that he did to succeed. Verse five, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house. Verse five, the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had. Moses is making the point that yes, life was 
extremely hard for Joseph. Joseph's life was not going as he had hoped, nor as he had planned. But that does not mean that God had abandoned Joseph, nor did it mean that God was angry with Joseph. Or that God's plan for Joseph was derailed. Nowhere in this text will you find Joseph pouting, (sighs) self-pity, complaining. You won't find it in the text. Instead, what we we see is a man who blooms where he's planted, (laughs) even as a slave in Egypt. He works hard for Potiphar. And as more responsibilities and more responsibilities are put into Joseph's hands, and that term hands is repeated over and over, more and more responsibilities are put into Joseph's hands, the text is clear that the Lord caused all that Joseph did to succeed. So yes, Joseph worked hard for Potiphar. And with the responsibilities that were put into his hand, he was a diligent, hard Worker, But ultimately, Moses is making the point that everything rests not in Joseph's hard-working hands, but in the hands of a sovereign God. It's interesting that Potiphar entrusted Joseph with work because the text says, he, Potiphar, this pagan Egyptian, saw the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D, the covenant Lord was with him. He's he's taking notice of Joseph's God. Verse 6 says, He left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything. Listen, if you are a business owner or you're the person in charge of hiring people, you want Joseph on your crew. You want the guy who, I don't have to worry about a thing because he's hardworking, responsible, and what what he touches seems to go well. Now, We need to be careful here. Being a Christian does not mean that in your job, if you work hard, everything's going to succeed. I think that God is doing something unique in salvation history here through Joseph. God's not necessarily raising us all up to be second command of where we live. But if we follow God's commands for us in the workplace, if we work hard and refuse to be lazy, whether the boss sees us or not, if we work with integrity and honesty, if we do our work without complaining, Christian workers will shine in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. You're going to stick out by simply working hard and not complaining. And as a result of your hard work and your integrity in your workplace, you will bless not only your coworkers, but you will bless the boss who you work for. Part of what we're seeing here is that when Christians trust God in hard times, they become a living demonstration, a living display of what it means when the text says that God is with his people. People take notice, and it blesses those people around them. To illustrate this, one of the things I, I always think about is my own, my own wife's testimony. When, when Katie moved from South Dakota 
to the University of Nebraska. Uh, if you would have stopped her in that moment and, and said, are you a Christian? She would have said, yeah, I'm a Christian. She assumed that she was a Christian. She grew up in a church. She tried to be a good person. She even taught Sunday school growing up. But in reality, she never understood or grasped what it meant to trust Christ alone. She thought she was a Christian, but she wasn't yet. It wasn't until her junior year of college that her roommate, Jenny, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, or MS. Jenny had a lot of things going for her. If you knew her, you probably would like her. Um, she was a good student, had lots of friends. She, she was kind and generous, and Jenny was a Christian. And so when Jenny told Katie about her diagnosis, her illness, Katie was upset. She didn't know what to do with it. How could God do this to such a good person like Jenny? And as she wrestled with that question, Jenny gave my now wife a front row seat to watch her struggle with a disease that was so debilitating that at times she couldn't walk on her own strength. But as Katie saw her wrestle with the challenges of her illness, Jenny also shared the particular ways that God was with her in the pain and the darkness of that disease. And so as my wife Katie watched Jenny's faith on display in front of her, God opened Katie's eyes. She went from thinking that she was a Christian, but Jenny was a really good Christian, to actually realizing, oh, Jenny's a Christian, and I'm not yet a Christian. And as she watched Jenny, and as she wrestled with the gospel that Jenny shared with Katie, and the church that she was going to shared with Katie, the gospel made sense, the Holy Spirit opened her eyes, and Katie was born again. She became a Christian, junior year of college. It was watching God be with Jenny in her suffering that God used to bless my wife for all eternity. Friends, maybe like Joseph, your life does not look right now, today, the way that you'd hoped it looked. Maybe your life is not going according to the plan that you had for your life, and it's hard, it's painful, it's disorienting. But what if, what if just as Potiphar was blessed in knowing Joseph, God has you as his child in the trial that you're going through in order to bless the unbelieving people around you. To be a display and an example of what it looks like to have God with you, even in hard times. Think about that, pray about that, and ask God to use you in the way that God used Jenny in Katie's life. Well, even if that's the case, though, I, I want us to be careful. We should not diminish the pain and the suffering that Joseph went through. He was a slave. He had a master. He was owned by someone. He didn't have, he didn't, he didn't have his life. And so his suffering would have been great. And yet, even in spite of that, by the time we get to verse 6, the text is showing us that Joseph is successful. Powerful people in Egypt are noticing, they're taking notice of Joseph. What's up with Joseph? 
God seems to be, this, this God of his seems to be with him. And so because of God's presence, he's on the rise in Egypt. Not to mention that he has a chance to tell and show Potiphar and to talk to Potiphar about his own Lord. So yes, sure, his brothers were mean. Sure, he was betrayed by them. He's far from home. He was sold into a slavery. And it was painful. But it was momentary, right? And as soon as that door is slammed in his face, as hard as that was, God seems to open another door. And th- seems, see, things seem to be going well for Joseph. Things seem to be looking up for just Joseph. Surely, we, at, at the end of at the, at verse 6, we assume that everything is going to go well for Joseph now because we know that God is with him. He's going to coast off into the sunset with the blessing of God, right? Friends, once again, the Joseph story challenges that assumption. Scene number two, tested by fire. Scene number two is tested by fire. Look with, and that's verses six through 20. You'll notice when Potiphar's wife noticed how handsome this 17-year-old Joseph was, she then quickly says to him, lie with me, right? Verse seven, she cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. And, and we, need to be, we need to read this rightly. This is not a woman that Joseph met on eHarmony. This is not even her seducing him. He's the slave. She's the master. If she says, go pull the weeds, if she says, fetch me some water, he must do it. She's the master. He's the slave. So in the same way, her lust, when her lust compels her to act upon Joseph, it comes out not as a, as a suggestion or a request, it comes out as a command. And she knows it. I'm in charge. You're the slave, I'm the master. Lie with me! As one writer notes, it's the temptation, the temptation that Joseph is facing, it's the temptation that comes when someone in power over you tells you to deny your beliefs, deny your beliefs, or suffer the consequences. I wonder if you can identify with that. Yeah, this, this happened thousands of years ago, but today it might look like an employer threatening to fire you if you don't celebrate homosexuality or transgenderism, which the Bible prohibits. It might be a professor in your university who threatens to flunk you for believing the Bible. It might be friends who mock you for not joining in their drunken party. And the temptation and the wrestling that Joseph must have gone through is not a one-time event. It wasn't just one request, lie with me, and then she's done. Verse 10 says, and she spoke to Joseph day after day. She's wearing him down, trying to, but he would not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. The temptation that Joseph faced was a sexual temptation, but it was also a temptation that was motivated by a desire to keep his job. If I don't do what the master says, what's going to happen to me? And so he could have rationalized 
why sex with this woman was okay because, well, is anyone going to find out? I'm miles away from my family. And maybe if I do what she says, it will actually, it might even actually advance my career. I'll be able to do more good in Egypt. And besides, it is Egypt, right? Sexual promiscuity is everywhere. Everyone does it. So there there would have been multiple ways for him to rationalize why he should just give in to what her request or demand was. But not only was Mrs. Potiphar persistent day after day, she was also crafty. Notice at the end of verse 10, she invites him or commands him to lie beside him or to be with her. So sometimes in her approach to him, she would just be brazen and just up front, lie with me, have sex with me. Other times she was more subtle. You know, Joseph, just just come on in. Just sit beside me on this bed. Let's just talk for a little bit. I was just talking. We, we see each other all the time. I'm not going to bite. It's just talking. We're, we're friends, right? It's just a conversation. And I think it's a good reminder that, that when temptation doesn't often have that frontal attack like that, it's more subtle. That's, that's the nature of temptation. Temptation does not come with a name badge saying, here, I'm here to ruin your life. It's often subtle. It comes incrementally. Oh, it's just a conversation. It's just one glance. It's not really pornography. I'm just glancing what's on TV. I'm flipping through the channels. It's not flirting. We're, we're, we're friends. We're co-workers. Potiphar's wife is crafty. She's persistent. But verse 10, he would not listen to her. (laughs) He overcomes the temptation. So I think one of the questions we have to ask is, how does he do it, (laughs) right? I mean, last week, Judah is like some easy pushover. All that Tamar has to do is dress up like a prostitute and stand there, and he falls. So what's different then about Joseph? How is he able to to resist temptation? How does he overcome temptation? I think that's a question that we as followers of Jesus ask all the time. Well, let's just make three observations from the text. First, Joseph entered the room knowing right from wrong. He didn't enter the room wondering if it was right or wrong. He entered the room knowing with a settled conviction right from wrong. When she tempts him or or commands him, he calls it what it is. It's wickedness. It's sin. Not up for debate. The Christian ethic, friends, the Christian ethic is based upon what our creator says to us in his word. We know what's right and wrong because our creator tells us from his word what is right and wrong. Are you standing on the rock of God's word? Are you confident, Christian, about what God's word says is right and wrong. Because if not, and you enter into temptation tomorrow, you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable to being influenced by the latest public poll. 
You're, you're likely going to be influenced by what your friends say is right or wrong. You're likely going to be influenced by what Mrs. Potiphar says is right or wrong. You have to enter into temptation knowing what is right and wrong. Put a flag in the ground, a decided conviction. This is what God says is right and wrong. That's what's right and wrong. Number two, Joseph didn't compromise in the small things. Joseph didn't compromise in the small things. Instead of sitting on the bed, oh, it's just a conversation, we're just friends, you're in the house all the time, he refused. And sometimes, friends, sometimes the best approach to temptation is not to sit and have a conversation with temptation. Don't do it. Sometimes the best thing you and I can do is just flee. However embarrassing or foolish that looks to the world, I don't care. Sometimes the best thing to do is just flee. And that's exactly what Joseph does in verse 12. Proverbs 4, verses 14 and 15 says this. See if you can get what Solomon's saying. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. Do you hear what he's saying? Don't even get close to the road. Six different ways he's saying, flee! So be honest with yourself, Christian. Are you flirting with the line of sin? Are you seeing how close you can get to sin? Whatever that sin is, whether it's anger or lust or gossip or lying, are you seeing how close you can get to the line of sin or are you fleeing from temptation? Third, third observation this might be one of the more important things. Joseph loved God more than what temptation offered. Joseph loved God more than what temptation offered. It's interesting, when Joseph, she says, lie with me, and his response in verse 9, he gives three reasons for not sleeping with her. His job, Potiphar's entrusted with me with all his responsibility. His boss, that's your husband, by the way, and his God, the end of verse 9, he says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Wanting to respect his boss, wanting to keep his job is good motivation. Proverbs 5 talks about what we would lose when we give in to sexual temptation. But his love for his God is what kept him ultimately from caving to temptation. James 1 verse 14 says that temptation happens because we're lured and enticed by our desire, what we value, what we treasure. In other words, temptation comes down to desire. It comes down to what you and I ultimately value. We will ultimately do what we desire, want, treasure, value. We'll make time for those things. We'll make room for those things. We'll make sacrifices for those things. That's just how our heart works. So overcoming temptation involves fleeing from sin. Yes, putting off the old man, putting up boundaries, having perhaps software that helps us not look at certain things or avoiding certain rooms or people. Yes, it involves fleeing, but it also involves Treasuring and loving God. 
Overcoming temptation is more than just resolving, I don't want to do that again. If that's, all that you're, if that's all that your fight is, you're going to lose. Our heart must be filled with a love for God, a treasuring of God, a love, a respect, and, and, and valuing of God. We sin when we value what temptation offers us more than we value God in that moment. So where does this desire and love for God come from? If this is part of the big answer for us overcoming temptation, where does it come from? Well, it starts with a heart change. As Jesus said, you must be born again. Or as the Old Testament prophet said, God is the one who by his spirit must take out your heart of stone that is unresponsive to God, which is our default position, and he must give you a new heart. He must make you a new creation and give you a living heart, heart of flesh that's responsive to God, that loves God. God must do that. And then by God's grace, we must cultivate and grow and fan into flame this love for God, similar to the way that we cultivate relationships with others. In other words, by spending time with God. We, we, we cultivate this love for God by, by talking to God on a regular basis in prayer, by listening to God through his word on a daily basis by gathering with the people of God at church week in and week out and on throughout the week, discipling each other, helping each other follow Jesus, and by obeying God. In other words, by walking in the light that we have and doing what we know God's word commands us to do. It takes time to cultivate this love for God, but us making time is part of showing that we value and love and treasure the God that we serve. Well, because Joseph loved God and feared God more than what Mrs. Potiphar or even Mr. Potiphar thought of him, by God's grace, he overcame temptation. And I'd love to say that that was the end of the story and the end of the temptation, but Mrs. Potiphar didn't stop there. With one last-ditch effort, she found Joseph alone. He came in to do his chores that day and there was no other workers in the house. And verse 12 says that she caught him, so no longer just words, now she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. It's interesting, you'll notice that Joseph's garment is mentioned six times in verses 12 through 18. Garment, 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 garment. And it's interesting because his brothers, in chapter 37, used his garment, his coat of many colors, to convince his dad that he had died. Now, by Potiphar's wife, his garment is used again as evidence against him. Remember, she's the master, he's the slave. So his denial of her demand would have insulted her pride. Her pride would have been wounded. How dare you deny me? And so to save face or to get revenge, Potiphar's wife fabricates a lie that he had actually assaulted her. She tells the other workers. When her husband comes home, she tells Potiphar, now, normally in Egypt, if this crime was committed, the punishment was death. 
So the fact that Joseph did not get put to death, but he got a lesser sentence in prison, I think that that suggests that Potiphar actually believed that Joseph was innocent. He had seen his character by now. And it seems that Potiphar's anger was not necessarily aimed at Joseph, but at his wife, who he likely knew was lying to him. But what's he going to do? Left between siding with his wife or the claims of his slave, he decides to throw Joseph into prison. And there he sits. Things, things had been looking up. Things were going to turn around for Joseph. And now by verses 19 and 20, he's put into prison. His feet are in shackles and an iron collar is put around his neck. Joseph had done what was right. He said no to temptation. He obeyed God. It seemed like Joseph did his part. And it seems like God didn't show up to do his part. Where's God in this? Friends, when we do the right thing, the honorable thing, the noble thing, when we obey God, there are times when we may not say it out loud, but I think deep down in our hearts, we think, I've done what's right. Now God owes me. I don't think I would say that out loud, but I think I function that way sometimes. If, if you waited to have sex till marriage, you may think, well, I deserve a good marriage then. If you didn't party and you worked hard in school, you weren't lazy, then you may assume, well, I deserve a good job then. I did what's right. God owes me that. If you clean the kitchen, you took out the garbage this week, you may think, well, I deserve a little recognition for what I did. I deserve a little praise for what I did. But when our expectations and what we think we are owed are not met, it's in that moment that our hearts are put on display. Because in that moment, what's revealed is that instead of loving God and loving neighbor with our good deeds, we're actually exposed as having tried to use God or use other people we claim to love in order to get something that we want in exchange. To be noticed, to be comfortable, to be praised, to be wealthy. And like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, it's possible that we have lived our whole life doing the right thing without any love for God our Father. Friends, are there ways that you are doing the right thing for selfish reasons? I don't know your heart, but I'd encourage you with me to spend some time thinking about that, praying about that, talking about that even over lunch, asking God to search our hearts that we might turn from that. You know, when we see Joseph in the end of this scene in prison, feet in shackles hurting, his neck in an iron collar, If, he, if Joseph was in prison because he was a scoundrel, kind of like his brother Judah, well, then that would make sense. He had it coming, right? But that's not what happened. Joseph did everything right. 
He obeyed God. He said no to temptation. And now he's worse off than when he started. Where is God? It seems like God was angry with Joseph again. It seems like God had abandoned Joseph again. Which brings us to scene number three, our last scene, walking by faith. Walking by faith, verses 21 through 23. Where is God, friends? Look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him his steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. We might be familiar with the story and just kind of gloss over it, but I think it's good for us to kind of look at what's being said and just let it sink in for a little bit. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers in chapter 37. His brothers, his brothers sold him into slavery. At the age of 17, his whole life was ahead of him. And yet the text says, in that moment of betrayal and being sold as a slave, the Lord was with Joseph, verse 2. And then working as a slave in Potiphar's house, awful. And yet the text says, the Lord caused all that he did to succeed, verse 3. And then falsely accused of sexual assault and put into prison. And yet the text says, but the Lord was with Joseph. And the Lord showed him steadfast, unfailing love. I don't know about you, friends, but when we hear about Joseph's difficult, painful path, God being with me, God being making me successful is not what my initial assessment of Joseph's situation is. I think Joseph must have wrestled with that initial assessment. Because it seems by his circumstances that God had abandoned him, that God had forgotten him, that God hated Joseph. And yet the text says over and over, the Lord is with him, the Lord caused him to succeed. The Lord was with him. The Lord showed him unfailing love. If we put ourselves into Joseph's shoes, just step into the story for a moment, we need to remember that there's no narrator saying over a loudspeaker to Joseph, don't worry, Joseph. God is with you. This is going to turn out in the end. He, he, he doesn't see that. He doesn't realize that he'll one day be the second in command of Egypt and that God will use this to save many. He doesn't know that. All he sees is, I'm in prison. And I did what's right. None of it made sense. It just hurt. For Joseph, it must have seemed like God was far away. And yet, the text says over and over, God was working. God was transforming Joseph from a foolish teenager who was telling his brother and his dad about the dreams. And he's changing him into a wise leader so that one day when a famine sweeps through the land, God would use Joseph as a leader who would save the lives of many. Nothing's wasted. 
His suffering is not wasted. His suffering is not meaningless. God is sovereign over it. He's using it. But that's Joseph. That's Egypt. That's thousands of years ago. What does this have to do with us today? Friends, worse than any famine of food or water, our sin leaves us in a spiritual famine that ends not just in physical death, but in spiritual death and hell. The wages of our sin is death. And though Joseph resisted temptation successfully in this incident, we know from the rest of Scripture that Joseph was not perfect. He was still a sinner. And the point of Joseph is not Joseph. The point of Joseph is that he is pointing us forward to a Savior who will be perfect. Years later, Jesus would enter our spiritual famine, as John would say, as the bread of life as the Son of God, as God in the flesh. And Jesus came into this world making the blind to see and making the deaf to hear. And Jesus came into the world proclaiming the good news of God's reign on earth. And when Jesus was tempted by the offer of, listen, you don't need to go to the cross, Satan tempts him, saying, listen, you don't need to go to the cross. You can bypass the pain. You can bypass the cross. Jesus refused to cave to the temptation. And out of his love for you and me, Jesus willingly went to the cross where he would suffer and bleed and die. And he would die not for his own sin, but for the sins of anyone who would turn from their sin and trust in Christ. Friends, in eternity past, Jesus always enjoyed perfect fellowship with God the Father. He enjoyed the everlasting presence of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But on the moment on the cross when he took the sins of those who would trust him, in that moment when he became sin, God the Father abandoned his son for the first time. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried. And the answer is that out of love for us, He was abandoned in that moment and suffered the equivalent of hell so that we could be accepted, so that we could call God our Father, so that we could know with certainty today that God our Father would never, ever abandon us. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, proving that all that was necessary for our redemption was complete. We don't have to add to anything that he did. It was not insufficient, it was done. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And now God in Christ calls everyone, me and you and everyone on this planet to turn from their sin that leads to death and to trust in Christ who gives eternal life. So if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I call on you, I pray that you would repent from your sin and your self-sufficiency, and that you would put your faith and hope and trust in Christ and Christ alone. First Baptist, this text is a reminder and it is a call for us to continue to trust and obey God. It's a warning for us not to judge the loving kindness of God by our circumstances. As William Cowper, the hymn writer, reminds us, 
Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So when our world is falling apart, when your world is falling apart, it's natural for us to want something to hold on to that we might have hope and happiness. But instead of something, God gives us someone. He gives us himself. And so in our pain, it may feel like God hates us. It may feel like God has abandoned us and that God is a million miles away from us in our pain. But it's in that moment, Christian, that we cling to the truth of what God promises us and proves to be true in Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says it this way. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a God who not only steps into our suffering and the suffering of this world, the pain of this world, the temptation of this world in Christ, your son, but Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. And he is sympathetic so that he can help us. So Father, we thank you that no matter what we are facing today, you are not cold or indifferent, but you know exactly what we're facing. And so we pray that you would help us. We pray that we'd be a church that helps each other to trust you, to follow you in good times and in bad. Help us to believe the promise that you will never leave us and knowing that, help us to have hope. In Jesus' name, amen.